Hello and welcome back to Don't Depend on Daddy, the podcast. My name is Michaela and I am your host. And today we are going through our first Break Your Budget book club recap. As a refresher, if you follow along on Instagram or TikTok, during the month of August, we started the Break Your Budget book club. And in this book club, we will be reading one book every single month. The first book is my favorite. It's my personal finance Bible as of now. And it is I Will Teach You To Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. This book is so good. There are so many good lessons and so many good thoughts and arguments in here. It also is structured very well in the sense that it lays out essentially like a six week plan. We'll get into all of the good stuff, but this was our first book club book and the theme of the episode is gonna be to go through it. Um, before we get into the bulk of this episode, I wanna go through just basic housekeeping, what we do every single week. First being, if you enjoy this podcast, please go leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can either leave me a rating or if you're feeling really spicy and generous, you can go leave me a written review. I love to read them, so if you are a avid listener, if you listen every single week, leaving me a review is really, really helpful. It helps push the podcast out. I'm trying to take the podcast as seriously as I can this year and hopefully going into next year. We've gone through the rebrand. I have consistently uploaded an episode every single week of 2022. So go leave me a review if you've been listening to all of them or if you're new and you are liking the show. Beyond that, um, we're just going to get into the book club update. I think what I want to do first for anybody who maybe doesn't follow me on Instagram or is new or is stumbling upon this for the first time, I'll give you a little recap of what the book club is, how we're operating as of now. So essentially every single month we are going to be reading a new book. Like I said, the first book in August was I Will Teach You To Be Rich. The book that we're gonna be reading in September is The Restart Roadmap by Jason Tartik, which I'm really excited about. The books that we read are basically gonna be themed around personal finance, career, and productivity, all of the uh, pillars of the content that I talk about on my pages. And we will be doing updates every week. So I share an update on my Instagram and deeper updates on my TikTok on Tuesdays. And those are all saved to my Instagram highlights and also a playlist on my TikTok called Book Club, which are all linked in the show notes. But you can also just go find me on both of those platforms. My handle is just break your budget. Every single week, like I said, I give an update on my Instagram where I go through just highlights from the chapters that we read. We talk about it a little bit on my stories. And sometimes, you know, you guys share your thoughts, your opinions as well, which I share. There's a whole highlight on my Instagram that you can go back and click through. Through. Another thing, if you are interested, we got a group me started for people who want a little bit more discussion when it comes to the book club. It's still very small and in its infancy stages. My hope is to get it to a point where, you know, there could be hundreds or a hundred people in there who are all, you know, avidly reading, following along with the book club. Um, basically I go in there and try to just start a little bit of discussion, hear people's thoughts. I love when people send messages and participate because I know that some of you guys wanted a little bit more when it came to discussing the book. I'm still working on getting this sort of up and running in a more cohesive or like scheduled sort of way. But if you're interested in joining the group me, I will leave the link in the show notes. 
Um, but you can also find the link on my Instagram highlight. So just go and request it. I check it every day and I'll add you. We have a small group. So if you want to join before it gets bigger, now is your chance. Like I said, I go in there and talk a little bit. So if you want a little bit more of direct access to me, I guess that's another great way to do it. It's free. There's no fee or anything. It's really just for discussion. All that being said, we are going to go through this recap. I think the plan here is that I'm just going to go through highlights and thoughts, lessons, etc., from every single chapter. And then at the end, we'll talk about like some of the broader lessons. But first, I think what I want to do is just go through a quick synopsis of this book, my overall thoughts from the beginning. So essentially, this book, I read it for the first time maybe two or three years ago. And I follow Ramit on Instagram. I followed him for a while. He also has a podcast. He essentially has like an entire media brand where he talks about increasing your income, career, personal finance, all things I'm very passionate about, all things I talk about as well, but with my own lens and perspective and experience since, you know, he, I think is like a 45 year old man and I am a 27 year old woman. So different phases of life, different perspectives, different life experiences, but we do talk about lots of the same things. I read this book, like I said, for the first time a couple of years ago, and I found that it was just so insightful and clearly laid out. So essentially I learned or I self-taught myself at the beginning of my financial journey that in order to save money, I had to stop spending money. And that was a lesson that has been very difficult for me to unlearn. But I found that in this book, Ramit really explained how to spend consciously in a way that I always knew, but I didn't know how to articulate, if that makes sense. And that was sort of what roped me into this book. Obviously, there are so many other things that he talks about, like creating an automatic money system and, you know, how to invest in asset allocation and optimizing your credit cards and stuff. But I think some of the major takeaways from this are really around conscious spending and learning how to use and approach your money versus looking at your finances from a very restrictive viewpoint. The way to that he lays this out is essentially like a six week program, which I personally have never followed. But if you are somebody who, you know, is looking for a little bit of structure, the way that he frames this up is that every six or every week there are like a lesson, there's a lesson or two that you work through. The first week is optimizing your credit cards. The second week is like beating the banks. Third week, get ready to invest. Fourth week, conscious spending. Fifth week, save while sleeping. Sixth week, investing. And then he kind of gets into like his own thoughts. So those are also most of the chapters in here, which like I said, we're gonna get into. A lot of the broader lessons I'll likely touch upon in each chapter summary. Let's get into it. So first things first, we have the intro, which is called, Would You Rather Be Sexy or Rich? And basically the premise of the intro was really to uncover why so many people struggle with money and all of the excuses that people make when it comes to changing up their finances or taking control of their financial future. One thing that I've noticed, at least through my own experience, talking to people, I used to work with people one-on-one, -on -one, is that a lot of people will just make an excuse as to why their circumstance is the way it is. That's not to discount all of the societal and economic 
systemic problems that exist and put some people in a position of um, advantage and some people at a disadvantage. Regardless of your situation, making an excuse as to why you can or cannot do something is common. It's human nature. You know, changing your finances is uncomfortable. It's also can be difficult depending on your situation. And I do find that it's easier to make an excuse. It's easier to be like, oh, you know, well, the economy sucks or the stock market's down or, you know, I'm never going to be able to pay off my loan. So what's the point? Or I'll never make enough money to be rich. So what's the point? And he really debunks this and basically is like, you don't need to be an expert to be rich. You don't need to make a ton of money to be rich. You really just need to break it down to a couple of key things, implement those slowly over time and be really consistent, which, you know, truthfully is the actual key or formula to making a lot of money, having a lot of money, finding long-term success. It's getting back to the basics, implementing a consistent system, and doing it forever and ever and ever, over and over and over again, the same thing. And then here and there, you can make some optimizations and you know automate things and systematize things, but if you really boil it down to one formula for financial success, it's to create a money management system that you either automate or you do half automated, half manual, and then you implement it consistently forever. It doesn't really need to be much more complicated than that, but it can be if you want it to be, which he gets into in the rest of the chapters. Um, but getting back to why so many people struggle with money, he boils it down to a few key reasons. One is that people make excuses, which we touched on. But the other is that there is so much information that exists out there when it comes to personal finance and managing your money that it can be really difficult for people to cut through all of the noise that exists and really decipher what information is pertinent to them, what information is important to implement, and what is really just distractions. Like if we think about picking stocks or you know what's going on in the news, all of that is noise and all of that sort of deters people from the real truth or the real thing that they need to do which is to invest their money simply so when you think about investing and again we'll get into this chapter there's so much information out there that makes it very very overwhelming and that's why so many people are intimidated or struggle with investing but it doesn't need to be complicated and all you really need to do is understand a little bit of baseline terminology in order to actually put together an investing plan and implement it over the long term. And I do think that the way that he starts out this book really highlights and uncovers excuses that people make and really, you know, fires you up and gets you motivated to be like, okay, I want to make a change in my finances. I'm ready to do this. And I actually love that. Something two that he highlights right at the beginning. He has this section called the key messages of I will teach you to be rich. And the big question that he asks right at the beginning that he sort of spurs you to think about as you read through the entire book is what do I want to do with my life and how can I use money to do it? And then instead of being driven by fear, you know, you are driven by this motivation to live the life of your dreams, which he defines as your rich life which I personally, you know, love that entire sentiment. And he gets into like, everybody's rich life is different. What does that mean for you? But when you think about why or the motivation behind why you would wanna make a change to your finances, it's really boils down to answering this question. What do I wanna do with my life and how can I use money to do it? 
A lot of times we think about money as this thing that's really hard to obtain, really difficult to manage, there's not enough of it. Ultimately, you don't need to have millions and billions of dollars to live the life that you want. You just need to understand what the life that you wanna live actually is and how much money you're gonna need in order to do it. And then how can you implement, maintain, and grow your system in order to reach that point? That was the premise of the introductory chapter, Would You Rather Be Sexy or Rich? And now we are going to move into optimizing your credit cards, which is chapter one, how to beat the credit card companies at their own game. You know, this chapter, I feel like didn't need to be the first chapter, truthfully. The one quip that I have with this book is that sometimes as you're reading it, it doesn't really feel chronological. Like it does, it jumps all over the place with a lot of different topics, which I found a little bit difficult to follow the first time I read it. And I think as a beginner too, when you think about creating a money management system, you kind of need to move in chronological order. I don't really like that this is the first chapter, but it is what it is. So essentially in this chapter, Ramit goes through um, why he loves credit cards, how to optimize them, and also he touches on paying down debt. So before we get into it, I wanna hit a disclaimer of credit cards can be a tool for helping you save money long-term when used correctly. I think credit cards get a really bad rap because a lot of people use them wrong. And if you're using a credit card as you know free money, you're not paying it off every single month, you're not using it responsibly, it will put you in a really deep hole. But if you use a credit card effectively, efficiently, and you know with a little bit of care, meaning that you are responsible, you're paying it off every month, you're not putting more money on it than you can actually afford to pay, it can save you money through reducing interest rates on different loans over the course of your life. So say you take out a mortgage, you can secure a lower interest rate, as well as with different rewards. So like travel rewards, if you're somebody who travels a lot, having travel rewards can save you money on a hobby or that you'd already be doing, or cash back. So like you can get cash back right on your statement based on purchases you'd already be making. So when you think about it, that's awesome. Credit cards are awesome, but not when you use them incorrectly or irresponsibly, of course. One of the things that he gets into, or I guess a theme that I wanna highlight is, before we get into, I guess, the rest of this, is he has this concept called big wins. And it's focusing on the themes of your finances that will move the needle forward. So there are 18 bajillion credit cards that exist in the universe. And there's a different credit card for different reasons, different purposes, and everybody can find their own perfect card. Finding the card that is aligned with the way that you want to use your money and live your life is essential. And you know, it all boils down to like, do you want to focus on a cash back card that's say giving you cash back on like groceries or cash back on eating out or cash back on gas? Or do you want to go with a travel rewards card that's going to give you points that you can use as currency essentially to purchase flights, hotels, upgrades, whatever, when it comes to flying and traveling. Think about what's important to you. Think about how you wanna live. If you don't travel a lot, obviously a travel credit card's probably not that great. Or if you do travel a lot, you know, do you wanna pay an annual fee, a higher annual fee to get additional benefits that come along with that credit card that would cost more if you didn't have the card? You know, there are lots of different ways to think about that. I personally think that if you are stuck on what credit card to get, you should check out thepointsguy.com 
It's an excellent resource for all things credit cards. I'm pretty sure like every single credit card that exists that isn't like a store credit card is on that website. And he basically pros and cons every single one by category. So by cashback, by travel, by platinum, by issuer, like if you want to know about a card, it's on that website. So definitely check it out. It's thepointsguy.com. The other thing he talks about in here is like the difference between your credit report, your credit score, how that can sort of like impact credit cards saving you money long term. So your credit score is essentially like your adult GPA. I think he equates it to being like your SAT score as an adult, which, okay, that's also a good way to think about it. But basically it can be anywhere from 300 to 850 and it basically shows like what's your credit risk to lenders. He also goes through how your credit score is determined. So I don't know if this actually holds true today because this book was written or rewritten in 2019 or 2018, I wanna believe this version of the book was published. But essentially it's 35% is, 35% of your credit score is your payment history. 30% is your utilization rate, which is how much credit you use on an average on a monthly basis over how much um, your credit line actually is. 15% in credit length history, 10% new credit, and 10% for diversity or types of credit. So do you have debt, um, like a student loan or a car loan or just credit cards? And the more types of credit that you have, uh, the higher it can help, or the more it can boost your score, which is so convoluted. I have an entire episode that I um, recorded with Josh from the Credit Brothers. He's like a credit card credit expert. So go back and listen to that if you're curious about credit. I wanna wrap up chapter one because I wanna be cognizant of time and not making this episode 18 years long. But the last thing in chapter one that I want to touch on is this quote that he says. And it's one of the key differences between rich people and everyone else is that rich people plan before they need to plan. And he ties this back to your credit score in the sense of oftentimes when you're young, you think I don't need a credit card, I'll just use my debit card, credit cards are bad. But what you're not thinking about is the impact that your credit score can have on your finances over the course of the long term. So like if you ever wanna get a house, if you ever wanna go back to school and take out a loan, if you wanna take out a car loan, if you have a strong credit score, the interest rate on those loans will be less. And the less you pay in interest can save you thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars over time. So while there are benefits to credit cards through rewards and stuff, really the key benefit is showing that you can pay back debt and basically increasing your score, showing that to a lender that you're not as risky or less risky in air quotes for people listening, not watching. Um, and ultimately that will help you save money long-term. So, that is chapter one. There are so many really amazing nuggets of information in here that I just can't get to all of them. He goes through the six commandments of credit cards too, which is like, honestly, nothing groundbreaking. Negotiate your APR, try to get fees on your cards waived, keep your cards open for a long time and keep them active. Don't have too many cards. Try to get more credit if you don't have a lot of debt so that you can decrease your utilization. Um, and use your card secret perks. Oh, that's one more thing that's important to highlight. A lot of credit cards have perks that you don't know about. So one example that I always like to share is Chase Sapphire. I have the Chase Sapphire Preferred, and 
they have like an insurance policy almost on their card that if your trip gets delayed for like over 12 hours or a certain number of hours, so say you're traveling, you get an overnight delay or something and you need to get a hotel, they'll reimburse you up to $500 on hotel, food, and all of the things related to that. So look for those kinds of perks on your cards. Most cards have them that they're just, and they're just not like advertised. Anyways, moving into chapter two. This chapter is called Beat the Banks. And honestly, I think this is probably like the most boring chapter in this entire book, but we're going to touch on it briefly. Essentially, this is going through Ramit's own financial framework where he talks about different accounts that you could need. So he talks about a checking account, which he calls a cash flow account, and he refers to it as the backbone of your financial system. It's where your money comes in and then is filtered out to all of the different places. And then he also talks about savings accounts, which are short term to midterm savings. What I don't believe he touches on thoroughly are high yield savings accounts, which are basically savings accounts where you can make more in interest every single month. I think he briefly touches on it, but I can't find the actual page. He goes into the psychology about having two cash accounts, essentially like a checking account and then a separate savings account where you have money for your goals. The reason being is because when you have money in your checking account, that's money that you like think you have to spend. But if you move it into a savings account, you're way less likely to save it. You're way more likely to can or you're way less likely to spend it. And you're way more likely to save it and not touch it because it's in a completely separate account. I think of this, I always refer to it as inconvenient savings, meaning that it's money that's accessible to you. It's just slightly inconvenient. And because it's slightly inconvenient, you're far less likely to dip into it or spend it unnecessarily. Okay, moving on to the next topic within chapter two. He goes through and highlights some of his favorite accounts, which I thought was interesting because this book was written in 2019. And honestly, like, I didn't really use any of the accounts that he suggested at the time. I'm pretty sure I already had most of my accounts set up. But two of the accounts that he suggests are Ally, which I love Ally and I work with them on a contract now. And then Capital One 360, which I love just because it's like, okay, so he's suggesting these accounts and I already talk and, you know, use these accounts. So it's good validation. Two banks, he says, to avoid Bank of America and Wells Fargo. Unfortunately, I do use both of those banks. I use Bank of America as my like main checking account. I always have. And truthfully... I'm not going to change it because it would be very, very annoying. I use Wells Fargo for my business bank account because I couldn't get a business account with any other bank. It was like so difficult for me to do that. The reason why he doesn't like these banks and the other sort of, I guess, topic within this chapter is because these banks are kind of sneaky. They have a lot of fees. They have bad customer service. Like they're just not high quality banks. And you know, you can't win them all. Like at the end of the day, a bank is a business. And I think if you're paying attention to the fine print and you're keeping a balance in there that needs to be there, you know, you're not doing anything sneaky. I don't really see any reason to not use one of those banks just because they are the most accessible banks. Like you can use a small local bank, but it's much harder to get cash. You're always gonna pay ATM fees. Like the reason I went with Bank of America is because that was the main bank that was in Boston. And it's also a main bank that's 
available all over the country where like Wells Fargo, for example, isn't available everywhere or different, you know, credit unions are not always as easily accessible. So that was what was important to me. But I think it's important to just understand that different banks are going to have different fees and it's important to pay attention to them when choosing a bank. So that was basically the gist of chapter two. Like I said, this chapter was pretty boring. And now we are gonna move into chapter three, which is where I feel like this book starts to get much better. Okay, now since we're getting into sort of the bulk of this book, I'm going to start focusing on my notes a little bit so that I don't over talk and make this episode super, super long. So chapter three is called Get Ready to Invest. And this chapter first starts with Ramit debunking why so many people don't invest because they're afraid of potentially, air quote potentially, losing money. And I think this is a huge misconception when it comes to investing because a lot of times people equate investing to gambling and that's just simply not what it is. But what they don't realize is that you're essentially losing money by not investing and you're losing money by not investing because of inflation. And I don't really wanna to get too far into like inflation currently, but basically inflation erodes the purchasing power of your dollar. So as inflation increases over time, which inflation is normal, you know, lately we've been seeing more inflation than what is normal, but inflation is normal. So over time, the value of the dollar decreases and things start to cost more, more, more and more money, which explains why 50 years ago, you could buy a donut and a coffee at Dunkin' Donuts for 50 cents, and now it probably costs like five bucks. It just is the way the economy works. But if you're not actually investing your money, the dollars that are sitting in your bank account are losing value over time. And when you invest, you have the potential to earn a higher rate on your money that can either outpace or increase in line with inflation. He goes into talking about what he calls three types of people, the A's, the B's, and the C's. So the A's are the people who are already actively managing their money well. So all of you guys listening to this podcast, um, the B's are people who aren't doing much right now, but could be persuaded to do more and make changes with the right knowledge. So I'm sure some of you guys listening to this podcast too could fall into that category. And the C's are people who are a lost cause and look for excuses instead of getting started. So if you're listening to this podcast, you don't fall into the C range. He goes into as well, like a lot of different invisible investing scripts, which I'm going to read through because honestly, I think these are very common. One invisible script and an and invisible script are like reasons why or beliefs that people hold as to why they can't do something. And the first one here is that there are so many stocks out there, so many ways to buy and sell stocks and so many people giving different advice that it feels really overwhelming. What it actually means. This is code for, I want to hide behind complexity. Any new topic is overwhelming. Diets or workout regimens, learning how to dress better, parenting. The answer isn't to avoid it, it's to pick a source of information and start learning. I love this so much because again, a huge reason why people don't invest is because there is a lot of information about investing that exists out there and the information can be overwhelming. But if you hide behind information overload as an excuse as to not getting started, you will always be behind. You're always gonna be two or three steps behind. When in reality, if you pay attention and you focus for a couple of days and just learn over time, 
you know, what it takes to invest, basic concepts. You read this book, you join the book club, you follow personal finance creators online who teach this stuff to you. You can actually learn how to invest and do it on your own. It's not that hard. And I don't mean that to gaslight people, but like it's actually not as hard as you think it is. It can be scary, but it's not necessarily difficult. I'm gonna read a couple more of these. One is due to my lack of knowledge and experience in it, I don't wanna lose my hard earned money. And what this actually means. Ironically, every day you don't invest, you actually are losing money due to inflation. You'll never realize this until you're in your 70s, at which point it will be too late. And then one more is, I haven't invested in anything because there are so many different options to put my money in over the long term between real estate, stocks, crypto, commodities. I know I should invest, but stocks don't feel controllable. The great irony is that this person believes control will help their investment returns, when in reality, they'd actually get better returns by doing less. The less control they have, the better. Data clearly indicates that the average investor buys, house, buys high, sells low, and trades frequently, which incurs taxes, and all of this cuts their returns by huge amounts. You think you want control, but really you don't. Just let go. Another really great lesson when it comes to investing is that Really, you just need to buy and hold long-term and don't overcomplicate it. Don't look at the noise in the market. Don't look at the economy. Don't look at things going up and down. If you buy and hold over the long-term, historically speaking, you know, we can't predict the future and past results don't indicate future returns. That's a big fat disclaimer you'll see on every single investment product that you ever buy. But historically speaking, the stock market has grown over time and there's no indication that anyone knows as of now as to why that wouldn't happen in the future. The other concept that he goes into in this chapter is what he calls the personal finance ladder, which I love. I think this is a really great way to think about how to prioritize your different uh, like goals or how to approach like a 401k and IRA and debt and all the things because that is something that is really complicated and difficult for people when they think about you know, I have a 401k, I have a Roth IRA, I also have to pay off my student loans. There are so many things that you need to do and understanding what order of operations to work in is really helpful. So the order of operations that he uses, which is called the ladder of personal finance, is six steps. First is if your employer offers a 401k match, contribute enough to earn up to the match. Next is to pay off any high interest credit card debts or any other high interest debt. So you're contributing to the match and then you're paying off high interest debt. Once you've paid off that high interest debt, he then suggests to move into a Roth IRA. The reason being is that a Roth IRA offers tax benefits um, in the future. So basically with a Roth IRA, you're contributing taxed money now, so post-tax dollars, but when you retire, you can withdraw that money tax-free, which is the reason why so many people love that concept is because we don't know what the tax situation is gonna look like in 40 years when we retire. Rung number four is that if you have money left over, you go back to your 401k and max that out. Rung number five is if an HSA is available to you, so a health savings account, it's to go in and max that out or contribute to it. I believe the max you can put into an HSA is $3,600 a year. An HSA is a really great tool if um, you have a health plan that qualifies for one, so a high deductible health insurance plan, because it's triple tax advantaged, meaning you are putting pre-tax dollars in and then you can withdraw tax-free and you don't pay any taxes on it at all, which is amazing. 
And then rung six is that if you still have money left to invest, you can open up a taxable brokerage account. So like I would say rung six is sort of like for the advanced, meaning your income is high enough to max out a 401k and an IRA and an HSA if you have one, then you're moving on to taxable brokerage accounts. That is if you want to optimize your investing for taxes. Not everybody wants to do that. And remember, there isn't one single one size fits all approach for personal finance. That is something too in here that I think is a miss for Remy is he basically makes this claim that personal finance isn't personal and basically everybody is the same. And while I do agree with that to a degree, I just feel like everybody has different goals, everybody has different life experience, everybody has different situation, different income, different expenses, and you can't really boil it down to everybody doing the same things. So for example, let's say that, you know, maybe you wanna invest for a goal in 10 years. You don't really wanna use retirement accounts, and so you would need to reprioritize your investment strategy and the accounts that you're using outside of this ladder that he lays out. So I think it's important to just take things with a grain of salt and understand that a framework that's given to you is really just meant as a guideline to help you understand your options and a potential path, and then you can sort of adjust it based off of your own situation. So that's chapter three, which is getting ready to invest. It's really, I would say the big key takeaway here is him going through what a 401k is, what an IRA is, and then going through how to prioritize those things with paying off debt so that when you have the money to invest, which, you know, hopefully you have some money to invest, you're able to optimize the path that you take right from the beginning. He also goes through like how HSA work, how HSAs work and everything. So if you're confused on that, I definitely would recommend just picking up the book. Moving into chapter four, which is conscious spending. So this is like my favorite chapter, I think, of the whole book. Chapter four and chapter six, which is the myth of financial expertise. We'll get into that. But chapter four is conscious spending, how to save hundreds per month and still buy what you love. This is one of my favorite topics because, well, Ramit didn't necessarily introduce me to conscious spending he was the first person that I came across who could explain the concept. And he introduces the idea here of creating what he calls a guilt-free spending plan, which is where you identify your fixed costs, your investments, your savings, and then what he calls guilt-free spending money, which is whatever is left over. And so I, t I wanna say this sounds very familiar to what I talk about, which is creating your annual spending plan. I don't call it guilt-free because I do think that like when you even use the word guilt in spending, it kind of associates guilt with what you're doing, which I personally don't love. What I always talk about is a three bucket budget and that's breaking down your essentials, which he calls your fixed costs, your, in, your financial goals, which he breaks out into two investments and savings. Financial goals to me are also debt. He classifies debt as part of a fixed cost and then guilt-free spending money, which I call lifestyle non-essential spending. So similarities there, but again, it comes down to different approaches from different people. So when you're looking at you know, finance creators or you're trying to learn about money or something, I would encourage you to find the person that has or explains concepts to you in a way that resonates. So maybe the way that Rami explains something to you resonates more 
than how I explain it. That's awesome. You should definitely follow him on Instagram so that you can get more of what he has to say. Beyond that, he goes into what his whole premise is with conscious spending, which is spend extravagantly on the things that you love and cut mercilessly on the things that you don't, which I find, I, I guess the way that I feel about this is twofold. One, I love this concept and I love the idea of spending more money on things that you love and not spending money on shit you don't care about. That's something that I talk about often, all the time. And I think understanding how to align your spending with your values and priorities so that you're not spending money on things that don't add value to your life is an essential money skill that you have to learn as soon as you can if you ever wanna find financial success. I think if you don't know how to spend money, you will ultimately never be financially successful because it doesn't matter how much money you make if you are not able to save anything because you're just spending it crazy. The other thing or the other, the reason why I don't necessarily love the way that he says this is because I find that it's very extreme. And I think saying spending extravagantly on the things that you love and cutting mercilessly on the things that you don't doesn't really follow the concept of like, financial balance or financial self-care. And I know he's not saying this literally, like I am not trying to interpret it literally either, but I do think that, you know, life doesn't really fit into one or the other when it comes to this extreme view. And something that he, in my opinion, struggles with throughout this book, and it could just be for like, shock value and like the way that he writes is a lot of his opinions are very extreme. You know, he has extreme opinions on the economy. He's very much from the tone of like, this is what's right. And if you're not doing this, it's wrong and you'll never be successful, which I don't agree with. And that kind of, you know, falls, I think, into this phrase about spending extravagantly and cutting mercilessly. The other thing that he says that I disagree with is that budgeting is silly. Budgeting is not silly. And budgeting is for everyone. Budgeting is your permission to spend. Creating a budget is creating clarity and control around your finances. And he basically makes this blatant statement right from the beginning that budgets don't work. And to me, it seems almost like clickbait to get people to be like, oh, like a budget doesn't work for me, so I'm gonna read this book and see what he says. A conscious spending plan is a budget. Like, it's just him changing the word. So him, for him to say budgeting is silly is annoying to me because then he goes through and lays out like what a budget is and how to create one. So I don't love that. But the other reason why I don't love why he says that is because I think to say that the broader majority of people don't need to create a budget is irresponsible. Being able to live without a budget is a privilege, truthfully. Like, if you have so much money that you don't need to worry at all about where your money is going, you're really lucky. You are one of very few people, I think, in the world, especially if you're younger. If you are new on your financial journey, having a budget is absolutely necessary because you need to know where your money is going. He sort of too goes into this whole concept of like tracking your expenses is a waste of time and not a lot of people need to do it or doing it isn't gonna be productive. But if you're not tracking your expenses, how do you know where your money is going? So this is sort of where I lost him a little bit in this chapter because I just disagree. 
I do think that knowing how to spend your money is really important. I just don't think that saying that budgeting is silly is like a really productive way to think about your finances. Another thing that he talks about is what he calls the 60% solution, which is basically 60% of your money goes towards spending. And then you break up the last 40% into different categories for your goals. So 10% to retirement, 10% to long-term savings, 10% to short-term savings, and then 10% for fun money. I like this concept. I think it simplifies things very well. And it also can sort of get you away from the over-categorization of budgeting. But I think in this economy, 40% of your income towards savings and fun is probably not super realistic. But I'm curious if you like if you know this answer for your for your own personal situation, what percent of your income do you spend on essentials? And what percent of your income goes towards goals and non-essentials? Let me know. All right, now that we are through conscious spending, I'm nervous. This episode is going to be so long. I'm like watching the clock right now. We're going to move into chapter five, save while you sleep. And this is where he gets into automating your finances and what he calls creating an automatic money flow, which is basically a money map. He goes through the concept of putting together a money map. Let me see if I can find. Yes. It looks like this if you're watching the video, creating an automatic money map or your automatic money flow. And it maps out like, okay, so your money is deposited into your checking account. This percent goes to your 401k. This percent goes to your savings. This percent goes to paying off your credit card. And this whole theme here of creating an automatic money flow, so helpful. And putting together an automatic money map, so helpful. Mapping out where your money goes on a monthly basis, even from a high level so that you can visualize it is key. I like to do this in the personal finance dashboard. Ramit claims he's not a spreadsheet guy, but if you are a spreadsheet person like myself, you can use the code podcast one for $10 off the PFD. The other thing that he talks about in here is how to spend only 90 minutes a month managing your money. I think 90 minutes a month managing your money is kind of a lot. And for somebody who goes through and says like creating a budget is too much work to then in the next chapter say that, you know, only 90 minutes. If you have a budget, you don't need to spend 90 minutes a month managing your money. You could spend 10 minutes a week and 20 minutes at the end of the month, which is what I talk about all the time. That's way that's maybe 60 minutes a month managing your money. Um, 10 minutes tracking your expenses every week, 20 minutes at the end of the month, going through a quick routine, creating a new budget, doing your savings transfers, self-reflection, etc. But basically his whole thing about spending 90 minutes a month is that you can create your conscious spending plan, distribute your money, and then have you, everything get all set up every or have everything auto fire every month. I don't really know if what he meant to say was like you spend 90 minutes up front and then everything is automated going forward. But 90 minutes a month feels like a lot. One thing about creating a fully automatic system is that when everything's automatic, it almost removes a layer between you and your money. And there are benefits to automatic savings transfers and automatic investing in the sense that when things are automated, it just happens. There's no chance that you're not going to do it. And if you're somebody who maybe doesn't want to pay as close of attention to your finances or won't make those transfers on your own, it's the only way you may be able to save. What I don't like about having your entire money management system 
be automated is what I just said. It removes a layer between you and your finances. So you don't have as much of a pulse check on how much money you have, where things are going, and you're less agile. So I think that finding sort of like a 50-50% solution when it comes to creating a money management system is helpful. And by 50-50% solution, I mean automate your investments that are necessary. So like your 401k or maybe maxing out your IRA. And then for your savings and stuff, like you can make manual transfers. It's not that hard. That's something that a lot of people get so tripped up on. I see it all the time is like, well, I'm not gonna go and actually move the money. Why not? Just do it. It takes five minutes. I don't really think that that's a viable excuse. And if you're serious about, you know, moving money around and saving more money, like to do a savings transfer, it literally takes no time. So like, if that's an excuse you've been making of like, I'm not gonna go move the money, that's stupid. And you should really figure that out to put it bluntly. Because I just think that that, to me, that's an excuse saying I don't care enough to actually make a change. I don't know, that's just my opinion. But now I wanna move on to the next chapter, the myth of financial expertise, chapter six. This chapter is so interesting because basically it starts out by saying that Americans rely on experts and that, you know, whenever we're unsure of something, we basically defer to somebody else to either tell us what to do or to validate what we already think, which is very true. I do it too. But essentially when it comes to our finances, a lot of times people will say like, I don't know how to invest. I don't know what to do. So I'm just gonna hire a financial advisor. And Ramit basically debunks this entire thought process by saying that financial advisors are full of shit and anybody who claims to be able to predict the future or predict the markets, whether it be an advisor or a portfolio manager is lying to you. I agree and disagree with this. I don't think that financial advisors are full of shit. I think that in certain situations, a financial advisor can be very beneficial. And he does talk about this a little bit by saying like, once you reach a certain income threshold or you have a certain amount of money or your situation is unique, a financial advisor can be very beneficial for you. But beyond that, if you are somebody who is just like, you know, working a normal job, you're young, you're saving a percentage of your income, you're focused on retirement accounts, like your situation's pretty normal, you don't need a financial advisor. And most people are simple. And that all they need to do is create their investment plan, which is chapter seven, which we'll get into. All you need to do is create your system and then follow it consistently which I agree with. I don't think that a financial advisor is necessary for the majority of people. And the reason why he says this is because financial advisors essentially eat away at your returns over time through fees on your assets. So many advisors will charge anywhere between 0.5 to 1% of assets under management every year. So as your assets grow, which is what they're trying to do is grow your wealth, what you pay them in a fee every year is higher and higher and higher. It's one, one up to 1%, sometimes even more than that. If you ever see an advisor though charging more than 1%, um, that's definitely a red flag. And so he goes on to say like, if you're gonna hire a financial advisor or you're gonna hire somebody like that for help to look for fee only advisors, meaning or flat fee advisors, meaning that they charge you one upfront fee for their expertise and then 
Either they invest that money for you and keep it there or you go do it on your own after you consult with them on the plan that they're putting in place for you. That does exist. You can hire an advisor who will put together a financial plan for you and then you go off and execute it on your own. But essentially the reason why he says that people who manage money or even portfolio managers, so people who are making or creating mutual funds that you invest in are full of shit, meaning that they can't beat the market consistently over time and you're better off investing passively. So he explains two different concepts, active management and passive management. So active management means that a portfolio manager is actively picking stocks in the hope that they'll create a fund, a mutual fund that will give you the best return. Because there is somebody actively making those decisions, building the fund, you know, that's going to require a higher fee. So if you hire a financial advisor who's charging you 1% and then they're investing in these mutual funds that are also charging a 1% management fee, you're paying 2% in fees for likely less returns on something that you could just do on your own. And so oftentimes too, advisors will have relationships with certain portfolio managers and they'll sort of only put your funds into certain or only put your money into certain funds. And that can kind of lead to like conflicts of interest Um, which is a whole other rabbit hole to get down. On the other hand, there's what's called passive income or passive investing or passive management, which basically replaces these portfolio managers with an index. And when you think about index funds, you know, the funds that you're investing in that are index funds are basically pre-built off of a defined index. And so all of those investment decisions are made by computers based on the you know, breakout or allocation of that specific index that you're tracking. So there's nobody making those decisions for you. As a result, there are lower fees. And like I alluded to or talked about earlier is the stock market historically grows over time. Disclaimer, can't make those or can't make any claims. But the hope is that over time, you know, your money will grow more and more compared to active management. So what's better or worse, you know, depends on the person. There are people who believe in active management, people who believe in passive management, one being better than the other. I personally, my entire portfolio is in index funds or index ETFs. I don't have any actively managed funds, but that's just my thought. So that is chapter six, the myth of financial expertise. Okay, moving on to chapter seven, investing isn't only for rich people. So this chapter starts out by basically debunking that you can, in fact, invest on your own and you don't need to have a ton of money to start investing, which is true. He goes into automatic investing, which we sort of talked about, like automating your investments, I think is really beneficial because A, it removes the if or the when and B, it sort of keeps you separate from diving or making investment decisions based off of the current market environment, which is detrimental to your long-term investment returns. Beyond that, he goes into financial independence, which is basically defined as your investments making enough money every year to cover your expenses so that you no longer have to work and that different people you know, who are pursuing financial independence have different definitions of it, or there's different levels of it. One could be just like retiring early, which would be retiring in your thirties or your forties. One could be 
Um, lean financial independence, which means that you're living a lean life, i.e. your expenses are very low, like $30,000 a year. And so you live very frugally and then you retire on you know less money and you continue to live frugally forever. And then another one is fat fire, which is like you live a little bit more luxuriously. And so you need more money, obviously, in order to retire early and have more money over time. The reason why I don't love the fire movement is because I think it instills an unhealthy approach to your finances early on. And there's this whole idea that like, okay, so if you're really frugal in your 20s and your early 30s and you make all of these sacrifices and you don't spend a lot of money and you work a lot and you forego experience, by the time you retire, you're able to live your life to the fullest. What people don't factor in is that you've taught yourself that spending money is bad and that you'll wait until later in order to fully live your life. And you know, that light switch doesn't automatically turn off when you retire or hit a certain number in your bank account. You have to then teach yourself how to go about spending money again. And I don't think that that's talked about enough. I do think that there's a lot of value in, you know, being conscious and intentional of investing and saving as much money as you can so that you don't have to work forever. But once you put a name on it is when it becomes obsessive. And I'm not a fan of anything obsessive related to your finances ever. I think that if you're creating these habits that are maybe obsessive, not beneficial over the long term, you're living a life that's just out of whack, out of balance. The other thing too with financial independence that I don't love is that you have to have people that are on your page in order to like enjoy it long term. So like if you're the only one in your group of friends who, or your circle, I guess, who is doing this, you know, okay, you retire, but everybody else in your life is working. Like if you're gonna do this, your partner, whoever you're with, also has to be on the same page or else you're retiring alone and then you don't have people to live your retirement with. I don't know, I just think there's a lot of things about it that I don't love. One thing that Ramit says that kind of piggybacks onto how I feel about it is that many fire adherents exhibit classic signs of stress, anxiety, and even depression and think that hitting some mythical number in their spreadsheet will solve their unhappiness. It won't. Yes, this is like kind of my whole point is if you are pursuing fire and financial independence in the name of retiring early and you are living your life for 10 to 15 years on a very frugal budget where you're saving and investing a lot of money, you are not taking a balanced approach to your finances. And no matter what time in your life you hit that number, you do not automatically change the way you think about money by hitting a million dollars in your bank account. You need to work on that relationship over time so that when you do have enough money to retire or to live your life the way you want to, you actually have the wherewithal to execute on that plan. Beyond that, in the rest of this chapter, he goes into what he calls the pyramid of investing options, which he talks about stocks, bonds, and cash being at the very bottom, index funds and mutual funds being in the middle and then target date funds at the top, meaning like the bottom is where you're most hands-on and the top is where you're the least hands-on. So like if you're gonna be picking stocks and bonds and creating your own portfolio of stocks and bonds, you need to be very tuned in to your portfolio so that you can ensure you have the right balance. 
Next, index funds and mutual funds, since those are baskets of stocks, they're a little bit easier to balance or to create a more balanced portfolio. And then a target date fund creates the portfolio for you based off of your target retirement date. Another thing that he goes into that I think is very important to touch on is asset allocation. And he calls asset allocation the critical factor that most investors miss. And that your asset allocation is actually one of the most important financial decisions that you will make. So you might as well take the time to make it right, which I think is really important. It could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for you over the course of your entire life. And that's ensuring that you have the right mix of investments based off of your age and your risk tolerance. So the younger you are, the more risk you can take on, meaning that if you are early on in your financial journey and you know, you're know years and years, 40 to 45 years away from retirement, you can afford to take on more risk and have a higher allocation of stocks versus bonds. Bonds sort of serve as like a hedge to risk in your portfolio. So the closer and closer you get to retirement age where you're gonna be using your investments to live, the more and more bonds you wanna introduce for the sake of wealth preservation. So you know, over that course of time, you've grown your wealth through stocks and as you get closer and closer, you sell off those stocks and buy more bonds to reallocate your portfolio to be a little bit less risky, if that makes sense. Um, he goes into the importance of being diversified. One thing that he says that I think is really important to think about the difference between diversification and asset allocation when it comes to your portfolio is diversification starts with the letter D and it means going deep within asset classes. So how are you gonna diversify your stocks? How are you gonna diversify your bonds? Asset allocation is A, which stands for across asset classes. So that's looking at what different types of asset classes are you going to incorporate into your portfolio. I think understanding those two concepts is critical if you are an investor and you actually wanna make smart long-term investing decisions. Moving into chapter eight, how to maintain and grow your system. This is where he talks about why you wanna do more. And I think he really does make a very, very, very interesting point in this chapter. And it's understanding when to say enough is enough. I think that this is fascinating because I think when it comes to managing your money and financial prowess, a lot of times we think, how can we do more and more and more? And he actually says this quote, and I'm going to read it. Sometimes financial advice just blindly encourages people to do more and more and more without stopping to ask, is this enough? The concept of winning becomes the goal instead of knowing why you're playing in the first place. When do you get to stop and enjoy all the hard work you've done? This is such an important point to make because I think we always look at our finances as like this ever evolving journey that we're on and how can we continue to optimize, continue to save more. And while that's important, it's like at what point do we stop and say, okay, like my system is my system and I'm just gonna continue to feed it. And that's basically what he gets into here is like, you can create this system and you can try to optimize things and try to you know continue to optimize your investments and spend all this time doing that. But where do we draw the line and say, okay, I've done enough here and now I'm gonna focus on just making as much money as I can to continue to feed this system and see exponential long-term growth which I think is so important. He also goes into like basically saying, if you wanna accumulate more wealth and grow faster, 
you need to put more volume into your system. And that basically is his way of saying like, you just have to make more money. The whole book is sort of built on this premise of you don't need to be rich in order to get rich. Like anybody can get rich and that's true if you have a system in place and it's optimized, which he had gone through in the whole book. But if you wanna get rich faster and you wanna accumulate wealth faster, you need to make more money. And you can do that through getting a part-time job, increasing your income at work, starting a side hustle, which he all sort of touches on in here. Or, you know, you can rebalance your portfolio to take on more risk, hopefully make more money, but that's risky. And he talks about that as well. Um, the last chapter, which is called A Rich Life, I think is also, I feel like I've said every chapter is my favorite chapter, but I really like this chapter because it's where he goes into defining and designing the life that you want and that a rich life for you could look different than a rich life for me. And everybody's definition of what their rich life is, is going to be different. And how are you going to use your money to live out your rich life? He says, and I'll read this quote too. For me, a rich life is about freedom. It's about not having to think about money all the time and being able to travel and work on the things that interest me. It's about being able to use money to do whatever I want and not having to worry about taking a taxi or ordering what I want at a restaurant or how I'll ever be able to afford a house. This resonated with me so much because this is sort of how I feel my rich life is. Like it's not necessarily that I never wanna work again. It's just about being able to live, live my life in a way where I don't have to constantly be worried about finances or worried about the next phase because I know that I'm secure enough in my situation that I can kind of tackle anything that comes my way, whether it's alone or with somebody else. So I think it's thinking about what does your rich life look like for you and is the system that you've created aligned with the rich life that you wanna live? So that's really what the end of the book gets into and that is the recap for the entire book. A couple of broad takeaways that he gets into, one being to live your life outside of the spreadsheet. And this is so valuable. Be, he says, my suggestion, remember that life is lived outside the spreadsheet. Be as aggressive as you want with your goals. Dream bigger than you ever thought. But remember that money is just a small part of a rich life. This is so important just because I think too, when we think about a rich life, we're only thinking about dollars. And there's so much more to life than how much money you have. And there's so many other facets of your life that you also need to feed, to feed attention to. And you can't be turning down plans or experiences in your life for the sake of saving more and more money. You need to really figure out what's that line. When is enough is enough? What does that look like for you? And how can you make sure that you stick to that over time? The last one is that most people are the same and until you reach a high threshold, you don't need and shouldn't do anything different. And I agree with this. I do, and I said this earlier in this episode, but like, I do think that personal finance is personal, but I think ultimately, unless you have a very unique situation, you don't need to be doing anything super specific or super different compared to the person next to you. You know, the decisions that you make may be slightly different, but it doesn't need to be crazy different, if that makes sense. So with that, I'm gonna wrap up this podcast episode. I hope that you guys liked it. I hope you're enjoying the book club so far. 
And don't forget, next month we are reading The Restart Roadmap by Jason Tartik. I'm very excited about it. And I will catch you in the next one.